Let's do the insurrection pivot. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truths you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup is the one and only Liz Gilbert Cohen. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign, and she's worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, Happy New Year. Welcome back. It's great to see you. Thank you, Ron. Happy New Year. I'm so excited to be with you today. Thanks. Also returning to the roundup, Liam Donovan. Liam has nearly two decades of experience working at the intersection of politics and policy. He's currently a principal at Bracewell LLP and spent two election cycles at the National Republican Senatorial Committee where we work together. Liam, great to have you back. Always good to be here, Ron. And I promise it is purely a coincidence that every time you're on, we seem to be talking about immigration. However, (laughs) you seem to be quite prescient on this issue. So uh, that's what's up first this week. The immigration crisis continuing to boil over as border crossings hit record highs in December. Then we're going to dive into the legal corruption of congressional stock trading that everyone cares about and the very illegal corruption of Bob Menendez. That has gotten way too little attention. Later, we will look at Joe Biden's plans to shift his campaign focus to Donald Trump's role in the January 6th attack and what it means. I think we should call it the insurrection pivot. Sounds like a square dance that those uh, insurrectionists might do in prison. Okay, after the main show, we're going to head over to Politicology Plus, where we will talk about the firestorm that is the controversy around Harvard President Claudine Gay and her resignation shockingly bad takes about it, and the big question of whether DEI is now or is going to be a political liability for Democrats in November. To join us for that discussion, plus lots more ad-free episodes all on a private podcast feed, go to politicology.com slash plus, or just open the show notes for this episode and click the link right at the top. We'll dig in in just a minute. Okay, as we kick off the election year, All eyes are still on the border crisis. House Republicans kicked off the year by heading to the border near Eagle Pass, Texas on Wednesday. Speaker Mike Johnson brought about 60 members to the area, including House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan and Homeland Security Committee Chair Mark Green. The conference is also preparing to bring impeachment proceedings against Homeland Security Secretary uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. Jordan and Green would be at the center of an impeachment effort against Mayorkas. In the Senate, negotiations on immigration and asylum policy were punted to the new year because they couldn't reach a deal last month. Surprise, surprise. All of this is happening against the backdrop of truly skyrocketing migration at the southern border. Uh, Sources from Customs and Border Patrol told both ABC News and Fox News that there were over 300,000 migrant encounters at the border in December. That's the most ever recorded in a month. And those are preliminary numbers that could change. Reports of those numbers came right after the Justice Department threatened to sue Texas over a new law, uh, which is Texas SB4, which would allow for state and local law enforcement to arrest, jail, prosecute people they suspect entered the country illegally. And Axios is reporting that the Biden administration is fighting with Texas over whether Border Patrol agents have the jurisdiction to take down razor wire Texas officials put up to cut down migrant crossings. So part of what makes the situation particularly interesting is the way it's impacting cities further north. But before we get to that, 
just looking at the optics, how could the Biden administration fighting with Texas over border enforcement shape the landscape heading into uh, the election cycle? Liz, do you want to kick it off? Sure. I, you know, I, I think it's all about timing, right? I mean, it's it's both the start of an election year, but also, you know, looking at what the numbers were in December, like you just mentioned, and the Republicans are going to run with this, as we all could have predicted. I think whether or not December was at a record high and the fact that it was will just give them that kind of additional fodder for this fight. So I think we should be prepared to see this at the forefront of the political discourse for a while, probably through November would be my guess. I think maybe Liam could touch on that um, a little bit more. But, um, you know, the Biden administration and I think we'll talk about this, um, as you mentioned, we'll you know discuss other cities like Chicago and New York and, and the impacts there. But the Biden administration both has to tackle the issue while also understanding that it is a political football right now, which I think for most people, we would hope that it wouldn't be. But I think it's tried and true that that's what we're going to see through November. Liam, do you want to sort of give us a recap and bring us up to speed on why this is such a political football? I think in the past, we've the way you put it was um, Republicans want to talk about only this and Democrats want to talk about never this, something along those lines, uh, because this, as a political matter, um, this accrues to the Republicans' benefit. So um, let's talk about the optics now and then going forward into November and and then we'll talk about the northern cities and then ultimately the you know the the material of a deal potentially. In terms of the acute problem, it's pretty obvious. Everybody understands there's problem with the asylum process, problems with border security per se. Uh, I think the question is um, how do you fix those things? I think the the White House has put certainly funding on the table. So we want to we want to spend more money on the border. We want to you know fund the staff required to process these people. That kind of thing. That is not what Republicans are interested in. They'll they'll take it perhaps, but they want policy changes. They want to go back to the Trump status quo. That is the limited conversation we're having here. But if you zoom out, the big picture of this is the big, messy immigration system that we've been arguing about for you know, certainly 15 years, but really more like, I mean, ever since 86, I suppose, but certainly in the last 20 years, it's been one of the key animating forces in the Republican Party, even internally. I mean, it's something that's torn the party apart in some cases. It's, it is one of those dividing lines between the establishment that always wanted comprehensive immigration reform and the hardliners that, I mean, the proto- Proto-MAGA, proto-Tea Party stuff was, you know, Arizona, you know, border Minutemen, that kind of stuff. So this has a long history. Um, you know, you could you could take this one piece and imagine how it would be fixed, but it always comes down to the question of do do either does either side really want to fix that? And and certainly I think the White House does. Certainly I think the negotiators in the Senate do. But if you go out to the polls, you go out to the activists, you go out to the people that are truly invested in immigration policy, you know, the, the immigration related groups don't want to give on these things and they want lots of other things if they are going to give on that. And conversely, the the people who are animated by this on the right, um, they want more. If if Biden is in a position where he's going to give you something, if you make that deal, you probably didn't ask for enough. And so what they're putting out there is their hard line is H.R. 2. And, you know, I don't think we need to get too far into the weeds of exactly what that entails. But the, the key point from a political standpoint is Schumer, Biden, Democrats generally have said, no, we will not do that with full knowledge that they will not do that. Republicans are saying, well, we won't make a deal without it. So you're kind of at this um, 
you know, at loggerheads here. And ultimately, we've talked about this the last couple episodes, but the question becomes, clearly some people want to get to yes. I think the administration wants to get to yes, because even if they have to be dragged there, it is good for them to resolve this. Or if not to resolve it, to at least share the blame for it. If if whatever happens doesn't fix the problem, they can at least say, hey, we tried, and now everybody kind of owns it. The flip side of that is if you're Republicans and you're not getting everything you say you want, you can keep the issue, point at him and say, well, he if he really wanted his, you know, whatever, the, the supplemental spending. Because remember, this is the other piece here is this was meant to somehow fix the thorny issue of how to get through a supplemental bill that funds Ukraine, funds Israel, funds Taiwan, funds all these other things. What you've done is take a really hard problem over here, mash together with a problem we've been wrestling with for for years, if not decades, um, with the idea they somehow cancel out, I guess. I don't quite know. Um, it made sense at the time. At this point, it makes less and less sense. As you mentioned, we move into an election year here, and the decision um, of the political fear that the speaker has elected for, you know, coming out of December when there was really this push among senators, we want to stay here, we want to get it done, and obviously that didn't happen. And what is Johnson doing? Not really signaling he's looking for a deal. He's going to the border, bringing 60 of his best friends, and setting up a shot that literally has migrants crossing the river in the the background. So um, they like this issue. They are hurtling into a potential shutdown, partial shutdown, maybe full shutdown, and this will be their pretext. And so it puts Biden in a tough position. I think Democrats would tell you, the administration would tell you that, well, if Republicans won't take yes for an answer, then at a certain point they'll overplay their hand. But I think the, the concept of overplaying your hand requires them to actually want a deal. Do they really want a deal? Not the hardliners. And ultimately, if you're a new speaker, whatever you want, whatever you'd like to see happen in the end, um, it's really a question of his sense of security, his sense of what he's trying to achieve in the short and long term um, in terms of managing his conference and keeping them together through what's going to be a a tricky, a tricky gauntlet here in Q1 heading into an election year. So, um, you know, my my pessimistic take all along is. Yeah, this can happen if people are looking to get to yes, but it's not at all clear to me that the House is looking to get there, the Speaker's looking to get there, and all of the conversations, all the negotiation is happening as if the House doesn't exist. And that's the problem here is the Senate can't get anything done because there are 40 Republicans who care a heck of a lot what their House counterparts think and want. And so there was always this assumption that the Senate would – you know, the uniparty would take over, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell would shake hands and make a deal and jam the House. That has not happened a single time this year, um, or, or perhaps in the new year it, it will move that direction. But I think McConnell understands that he can't lead a conference that doesn't want to go there. He wants this to happen. He, he is trying to give space for that to occur. But at the end of the day, I think so much of this requires Speaker Johnson to signal one way or another what he can accept and because that's at the end of the day, you know, let's say he just thinks this is the right thing to do, uh, you know, politics be damned. We could very easily see another situation where um, the the House conference is thrown into chaos because people got mad about what his decisions are. So he's treading very lightly. And I don't want to assume what he's going to do, but that you can't ignore that dynamic uh, as we're trying to think. You can think like, well, this makes too much sense. Republicans want to fix this and Biden needs some help and this should make perfect sense. I don't think that's a good um, uh, encapsulation of the dynamics at play here, at least the things that need to 
be cleared to get a deal. Okay, so to to probably oversimplify here, the thing I'm wondering is if we can agree that the optics of this political problem, so long as it is the focus, accrue to the benefit of Republicans, right? Because disorder, chaos at the border makes you feel bad about America. Whose fault is it? The guy in the White House. Okay, then the guy who wants to solve this problem the most, Joe Biden, right? Everybody agrees. Solving this problem accrues to his benefit. The issue then goes away. He gets to take credit. Rah, rah, Biden 2024. Okay, then why is there so much reluctance on the part of the White House to give Republicans what they want? What is it that they want that the Biden administration simply will, what are they so opposed to that solving this problem, even if this stuff that, you know, okay, compromise is a dirty word in Washington, but what is holding them back? That's the thing that I'm wondering here. Because the net calculation should be this problem gets solved, the border gets secured, we have to give up a lot of stuff we didn't want to, but now it's not a focus. Joe Biden can move on to other topics. You know, clearly the considerations here are, this is a president who is... And again, sorry, just to say, I'm looking at this purely through a political lens. Like, there are probably really great policy answers to that, but... But from a purely purely political sense, you're looking at a president who has a fraying coalition and is looking at some really tough polls and is trying to do everything he can to keep this bunch together. Not only keep it together, but figure out a way that Republican intransigence and MAGA extremism can sort of put it back together in a sense. And any concession he makes to Republicans or to Trumpism that would um, splinter that coalition further, um, I think is what they're afraid of. So, so that part of that is what will the, the groups, the, 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 the key elements of the left that do care a ton about the policy and that informs the politics of this, I think that's the question is how much breathing room does he have? And clearly they've been put on notice that HR2 is a bridge too far. Okay, as I continue to prosecute this question, Liz, here is my question to you then. If that is the case, if he is ultimately politically worried about further splintering his coalition, which includes progressives who don't want to cave on the policy uh, positions that Republicans are, are offering, is he afraid of them not voting for him? Is he afraid of not being the nominee? Because their alternative is Donald Trump. And if he believes that splintering the coalition is going to result in these people not voting for him, that would shock me. So what is it about creating some discomfort among a, um, among a minority of the party uh, in order to get a political win that will then bolster his case for re-election? What is he so worried about uh, in the splintering of his coalition? Okay, I'm going to take maybe a, a pretty brazen um, approach here and say, I don't think he's afraid and I don't think okay. he's reluctant. I think we are not even underestimating um, on on this podcast. I think we are having a conversation about what we are seeing play out in the news and in the media, which is not a ton from them. We are not seeing the fight, the strategy, the behind closed doors conversations. I only have this kind of like hopeful Uh, potentially a viewpoint because I think we have seen the administration successfully um, advance their agenda in a very masterful way. Like, okay, maybe Joe Biden is not the best candidate. Perhaps we will say he is not a good candidate. He is a great president and he's a great leader and he is doing 
I think, a very, very masterful job in a way that people want to poke holes at him for whether it's age or whatever the the issue du jour is. People want to say, you know, not the best fit, not my candidate, whatever. But Ron, you're totally right. I mean, Democrats are not going to I was going to say pull the lever, but that might be very outdated at this point. (laughs) They're not going to vote for Donald Trump. And so I do believe not that Joe Biden is sitting, you know, in the Oval Office with any sense of feeling like uh, cocky. I think that would be the wrong word. But I do think he is coming from a perspective of, yes, the coalition is splintering, it's fracturing, but they are ultimately not going to leave me when I rematch against Donald Trump. Are there other issues at play here? And maybe this is a very different conversation, but, you know, other people are in the Democratic primary. There are other alternatives. You know, maybe it won't be Trump, though. Everything looks like it Marianne Williamson would really like you to know that. (laughs) (laughs) But so I just believe that they are sitting there, and by they, I mean the Biden administration, as well as the Biden campaign, thinking, okay, how do we masterfully focus on this issue, use every tool and trick in our toolbox to advance our agenda in a way that matters to us as the president and as the candidate. Ultimately, you know, I assume he is going to be the nominee. Um, How do we do it in a way that is authentic and good and right for us and not in a way that is just pandering to Mike Johnson saying, you know, Joe Biden needs to take less vacation and work on this issue. I mean, if we want to compare vacations, like we can go back and look at lots of Republican presidents, but they're using the rhetoric to say, you know, to make it look like Joe Biden is doing nothing. And as someone who I believe has an insight to how that building works, um, I do believe that there is an advancement of an agenda happening. We're just not seeing it because they don't they don't care if we see it right now. They've never been focused on winning the media battle, which, again, another conversation we can argue is to their detriment in many ways. But it's not about doing what's right for the headlines. I assume and hope, uh, you know, that they are working on this in in a way where they will be able to use it as a success point, hopefully, um, throughout this next year up and up until the election. That's my hope. And at the right time. Yeah. Timing. Very strategic people in that building. We got to we got to remember that. Liam, I want to zoom out to close this topic. Uh, There was a piece on. Uh, in Politico magazine from last week, um, outlining, uh, which will come as no surprise to close observers and you know people who work in politics, but but how the inability to make a deal in Congress has led to the dysfunction that we're seeing play out in the immigration fight. Um, and uh, basically, the outline goes something like: over the last thirty years, both parties have become less ideologically diverse, and parties themselves have taken on a bigger and bigger role in the legislative process. And almost every issue you know, used to be decided, uh, you, you and I worked around the corner when issues were decided often by a different bipartisan majority because they had to put together coalitions for different bills based on the ideology and regional preferences and political needs of members of Congress. And there were fewer sort of Democratic and Republican positions because you had this ideological diversity in both parties. And now that they've become more narrow ideologically, um, they've essentially battled to a standstill and can't compromise to make a deal. So that, so, so this leaves me with a question in this, in this particular instance and sort of, uh, uh, you know, a lot across the rest of the policy domain, given this reality, what has to break 
And how bad does the problem have to get before the pressure to solve it becomes greater, the political pressure to solve it becomes greater than the, um, than the calcification, the ideological calcification in the parties? Give me an easy question. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think part of the problem of the last 30 years is the way that you ended up with these you know, consolidation ideologically at the polls is that voters, at least the base voters, primary voters, decided they didn't like all the deal making that was happening. Because, I mean, think back to 2000 or so, like the whole sense that like neither the parties are the same. Everybody like it doesn't matter. Like there was so much um, disillusionment built on the idea that like, you know, they went to Washington and everybody just sort of, you know, they made their deals and it was it was something that wasn't with you know, it wasn't with voters in mind. It wasn't with their parties in mind. They went Washington or whatever. And both parties, you know, had a reaction to that um, from their bases. And, and I think, you know, you're seeing voters get what they've what they've voted for over time. Um, and, you know, what are, what's the incentive structure, you know, both within the parties and broadly? Who has who has seen any kind of payoff from doing good legislation, good bipartisan legislation, even, I mean, think about, I mean, Liz, Liz was talking about the, how, um, you know, Biden, maybe not quietly, but sort of, you know, in a low key way, put together a, a pretty impressive, um, legislative record, um, in his, uh, you know, first two years with really tight margins in both chambers. Has he seen any political upside? Do voters seem to be happy? Do they acknowledge that it happened to the extent they acknowledge it? Do they think it did anything? There's so much cynicism. And I think that feeds on itself to the point where I don't, I don't know how we get out of this because it's this, it's a, it's a doom loop of almost nihilism. Um, and we, we are so disgusted by our parties and who do we reward? Probably, probably bad guys that are exploiting, you know, those, those same feelings. And so, you know, immigration's a, a great example. We're like, you know, let's just, let's just suspend disbelief for a moment and say, Mike Johnson decides to take a risk and he, you know, puts whatever deal, whatever the best deal he can get, puts it on the floor and, and, and convinces his guys, this is the best deal we're going to get. You're still going to have every one of the same people that are out there, you know, shaking their fists right now, go to the floor and talk about how this is, you know, uniparty, um, you know, selling out. I mean, it's the, the same people that have got us here are going to make hay of it. And I mean, I, I guess the, the best case scenario is is something happens and it sort of floats away. Like like think about gun control, like the gun control uh, or no, I guess we don't call it gun control, whatever we whatever we ended up calling it. But like you got a bipartisan gun bill, right? Um, last last Congress, it was one of those last gasp bipartisan deals. It got 60 votes. We don't even talk about it because it didn't really, didn't really do anything. People got what they needed out of it. We maybe diffused the issue, but it's not like they saw any benefit to it. It's not like voters were like, good job. You guys, you guys got it together until voters start to reward this stuff. We're going to get more of the same. And, and if you look at who's heading for the exits, and this has been the case for the last three, four election cycles, we're losing governing governing minded institutionalists and the real fight for the future is going to be, you know, in in K Granger's seat. Who's going to who's going to take that over in in these, you know, in these red seats um, where people who've who've been there for a long time, you know, good members, hardworking, low key 
are they replaced by similar members that are up and comers or are they going to be replaced by people that join the Freedom Caucus and, you know, are more worried about their podcast stats and, and that kind of thing? I mean, it's the incentives are so perverse at this point that I don't know how you get out of it, um, but it's going to take it's, it's on us. It's it, it's on voters rewarding and punishing based on outcomes and not shiny objects. Okay, so the business model of uh, of uh, Congress is changed and broken. Essentially, we've talked about this before: attention, money, um, and the sort of corrosive incentives that now exist. One business model in Congress that is not broken is what we're going to talk about next. This segment is dedicated to Congressman Brian Higgins. Who? Congressman Brian Higgins, who had a very, very good year, astoundingly good. You might even say unusually good. Why? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. 2023 was a very good year for congressional stock traders. <laughs> There's this, there is this organization called Unusual Whales. Uh, and if you're on uh, Twitter, you should follow their handle, Unusual Whales. They put together an, a report on congressional stock trading using publicly available data from financial disclosure forms. Now, technically, members of Congress must report any stock transactions within 45 days. There have been cases where the disclosures were filed years later without any real repercussions. So not all of the disclosures for 2023 may be yet published. Unusual Whales calculated an estimate of the returns for members of Congress by estimating the current stocks held in their portfolios using the publicly available data. A hundred members of Congress reported trading stocks in 2023. A third of them beat the S&P 500, which is what we mean when we say they beat the market. Now, in 2023, the S&P had about a 25% return, which is itself quite high as its historic average is about 10%. You might say all of those new dollars that were created by uh, federal helicopter money flooded into assets that were going to appreciate among the people who had access to assets. So the best performer... Uh, in Congress is a House member you've never heard of, maybe until now, from the Buffalo area. Democrat Brian Higgins did more than 10 times better than the S&P 500 did in this standout year. His returns were estimated at, can we get a drum roll, Ike? 238.9%, <laughs> almost double the second best performing member, Republican Mark Green from Tennessee. Among the members who beat the market, were well-known national figures like former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senator Susan Collins, Dan Crenshaw, and Dan Goldman. But there were also members who most people would have never heard of, like Higgins, David Rouser, Deborah Ross, Chuck Fleischman. Uh, unusual Whales also highlighted some of the most unusual trades. This gets good. In December of 2021, Nancy Pelosi told reporters uh, that the U.S. is a free market economy and Congress shouldn't be banned from trading stocks. Then, after a lot of outrage... A couple of months later, to her credit, she flipped and said that she'd support a ban on congressional stock trading and then stopped trading for nearly a year. But then, in late December, Paul Pelosi bought $2 million worth of NVIDIA calls just days before they announced a modified version of their chip to sell in China to get around U.S. export controls. Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, who sits on the Armed Services Committee, bought stock in a company that provides tissue implants for people injured in the Ukraine war. He first reported buying the stock right before the Russian invasion, and it rallied up 37%. Uh, Tuberville also holds a quarter of a million dollars in futures trading wheat, corn, soy, and cattle, and 
He sits on the Agricultural Committee. Okay. <laughs> Lois, this is sorry, this is too fun, you guys. Lois Frankel, Democrat from Florida, sold her shares in First Republic Bank in March and thereby avoided the 80% drop in price when the bank was liquidated, as a careful observer might have done in that scenario. But she also bought stock in JP Morgan, the bank that was buying First Republic on March 22nd before the deal was announced. Okay. Um, I'll pause there because this is an example of what I think is the corruption that is currently legal in Congress that a lot of people seem to care about, but Congress won't take any action uh, to to resolve, despite Rokana's best efforts so far. How did you both respond to this report? Have you been following Unusual Whales, and is this uh, new or old news to you? Liz? I had not been following um, Unusual Whales, but um, as the former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, um, this is something that I have been following more at the state level. Um, but, you know, well, I'm sure we'll talk about um, our, our fearless senior senator um, in a moment. But what I what I will say, um, my reaction to your reading that with such glee because it is so ridiculous. It's hilarious. It, I mean, it's like it's it's. <laughs> I don't even know the right word choice. Maybe (laughs) hilarious is what it is. But to me, not to be the Debbie Downer, I will say it is very sad. And I use the word sad because I think when like average Joe voter is reading about this, this is why people write off politics. It's not because Joe Biden isn't getting an immigration deal. Maybe it is. It's not because of, you know, whatever. People are reading this and saying, this is so messed up. This is so unacceptable. Why would I vote? Why would I help these people succeed when they are not helping me? So like when I hear this overview, to me, I think it is sad. It is pathetic. It is disheartening because I think when the American voter who isn't understanding maybe every single nuance of what you just shared, or even those who are, Ron, it is really disheartening, I think, to someone who is going to say, I don't want to be involved in this process. I don't want to have anything to do with these people. Washington is broken. Drain the swamp. You know, like we're seeing where all of this rhetoric came from. We are giving them, we're giving them the rhetoric by example, by, you know, case after case, we're, we're seeing it. um, We're seeing it in numbers and money and, you know, it's, it's too easy to follow. So that is kind of my overview before we talk New Jersey. We've, we often lament Congress's abysmal approval rating in yeah. uh, in the United States, and they have earned it. Um, yeah. Liam, how'd you read well, this? What's crazy to me is, I mean, Unusual Wheels, I, it pops up in my feed anytime like Pelosi makes a trade. Like yeah. I hadn't been following it in a, in a big picture. For all I knew, it was just that one account. I didn't realize they had, they had, uh, they had the whole, the whole house wired. But, um, you know, what, what's remarkable to me is, and as Liz said, this just validates everything people just assume about politics and politicians in Washington, D.C., um, much of which I think is wrong. But, like, how do you argue with it when the, you know, the patterns speak for themselves? I think right. there's probably plenty of instances where, you know, it's pretty innocent or maybe it's not as, as uh, you know, corrupt as, as some of this stuff. But there's enough cartoonish brazen corruption um, that, that um, you know, this – you you can't get away with it anymore. You can't just be like, well, you know, what what are you gonna do? Um, there's there's too much information asymmetry um, that uh, even if you weren't ignorant or even was your broker or something, like nobody's gonna buy that. And the optics are so bad that again, it just feeds the same system that is that is so broken. But I think what's remarkable is I had to look it up because I couldn't remember. I was like, 
you know, I think back when people still watched uh, linear television and, and uh, things like 60 Minutes, I, re- I just distinctly remember 60 Minutes going around and um, like interview, like basically ambushing mm. members kind of off the floor and around the Capitol in the wake of the um, financial crisis and and sort of quizzing them on the trades they'd made in relation. And they'd done pretty well when the market was obviously, you know, going, going, you know, where um, that was a decade ago. That was what uh. gave us the stock act. So the fact that like this conversation is still happening 10 years after they enacted the legislation that was supposed to fix it is just pretty crazy. So um, you'd think that Congress would, would uh, finally try to get its act together and realize that, you know, it's, it's probably for the best to put in practices that, that don't, um, you know, uh, continue to poison the well. Um, but I, but I suppose, I suppose that's too much, too much to ask. But I think, I mean, there's, there's these cartoonish examples. I remember, you know, there's something about Western New York, I guess, with the, I mean, I think Colin or, um, uh, Higgins is the most recent one, but I remember back on the Republican side with Chris Collins, mm. he was the guy that was overheard. There was like a, a tweet because a reporter heard it. He's dishing stock tips like right off the house floor. <laughs> yeah, and it turned right. out he's in jail. He's like, he, he went to jail for insider <laughs> trading, but he's out there pumping his stock. Oh, by the way, he's a director while being a member of Congress. I mean, it's, I think that's the problem is like whatever kind of good faith actions out there that might be pick, getting picked up by people that are looking really closely. There's enough bad actors that the optics are just untenable and you got to fix it. Yeah. I mean, to an earlier point, the voters have to start punishing them for this. And if they don't, if nobody cares, then by the way, all of this is legal. None of these people did anything that is against the law or even against the ethics of their, of their, of their respective chambers. Um, so there's that, you know, the real scandal is what's legal. <laughs> yeah, the real scandal is what, yeah, well, yeah, well put. Um, by the way, listeners, if you, uh, for, for your trading pleasure, if you, if you want to go to, uh, you know, if you want to follow the trades of Congress, Unusual Whales has actually gone to all of the, they've jumped through all the regulatory hoops to allow you to go just invest in an ETF, a ticker on the stock market so that you can actually trade, you can buy shares. I think they're around the $20 right now a share. Uh, for both Republicans in Congress and Democrats in Congress, these ETFs actually mimic the the trading of uh, of Congress and their portfolios. So the ticker symbol for Republicans is Cruz, K-R-U-Z. <laughs> and the ticker symbol for Democrats is, any guesses? AOC? I don't know. N-A-N-C. <laughs> That's pretty clever. I, I, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> gotta go check that out. <laughs> On Tuesday. I'm curious how they do. Like, I, I kind of want to see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's the news about uh, legal corruption in Congress this week. But now for the news in the illegal corruption department <laughs> on Tuesday, federal prosecutors and and speaking of cartoonish, federal prosecutors made public a superseding indictment in the corruption case against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez. Prosecutors now allege that Menendez accepted race car tickets and other gifts from Cutter in addition to the early allegations that he was acting as a foreign agent on behalf of Egypt. Menendez took payments from a New Jersey real estate developer and co-conspirator in exchange for helping the developer obtain millions of dollars from a Cutter-linked investment firm. (laughs) Menendez also took steps to help Cutter, like making public statements and supporting a Senate resolution supporting Cutter. In a previous superseding indictment filed last October, prosecutors alleged that Menendez provided quote, sensitive U.S. government information and took other steps that secretly aided the government of Egypt. Um, 
before he was indicted in September, Menendez was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. (laughs) After his indictment, he decided to temporarily step down, but is still on the committee. To this day, as we record, he still sits on the committee. More than two dozen Senate Democrats have called for his resignation. John Fetterman, among them, has been pushing the Senate to expel him, particularly since the House expelled George Santos, finally. Um, Anyway, this story hasn't exactly been under the radar, but it has gotten, uh, it hasn't really gotten a lot of attention. And, uh, And specifically now that the House has finally expelled George Santos. I I think I and lots of people are wondering what the hell is the holdup on Senator Menendez? Uh, so Liz, what do you think is driving that? Home sweet home. Um, okay. <laughs> a few things. Um, I am trying to be very mindful of of my words, as you can probably tell. Um, I um, (laughs) can imagine that Schumer and Menendez have sat together and there has been a dialogue about this. I don't think Schumer is avoiding him. I don't think Schumer is not entertaining it. But I know that Bob Menendez on the other side of a conference room table um, is a very formidable uh, conversationalist. Mm. I will say that. I will also Mm. say we have known of Bob Menendez's, I will say, issues and troubles for many, many years, okay? When I was the executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, I will probably get some hate from this from your listeners and and rightfully so, so bear with me while I I out myself here. Bob Menendez was up for re-election in 2018. And so he was at the top of the ticket when we were working to flip four congressional seats in the state of New Jersey in 2018, okay? And we were successful in flipping those seats, and we calculated that we were only able to do so by having a unified ticket, which therefore meant we Hmm. could not separate Bob Menendez and the uh, corruption issues that he was facing at that time separate and apart from these congressional races, and so we worked to get New Jersey to an 11 and one delegation, meaning 11 Democrats, one Republican, because it's 12 districts in the state. And we worked so hard to do that while also helping all of these members of the House um, understand what it meant to run on a ticket with Bob Menendez. So I just explained that mm. to say I, I know the situation quite mm. well. And honestly, these allegations are, I will say, super intense, but it is not sharing with us anything that new, I believe. And so I have former colleagues still in the state of New Jersey saying, can you believe this? And the answer is kind of yes. Okay. I will say that we should all be mindful of the fact that Bob Menendez is also not resigning. Okay. He is not stepping down. He is not facing these allegations, this disgrace, this media attention and saying, you know what, I'm going to spare myself and I'm going to step down and I'm going to let the governor appoint someone like he is in it to fight. And this is exactly what he did in 2018. And he won. Do I think he will win again? I do not. Okay. Cause he's now in a contested primary with multiple candidates. Um, but uh, right. he's running for re-election, which is also something that I think we need to really, really pay attention to. So yeah, I will stop there. <laughs> well, here's my question, because I think that's where this gets really thorny. Uh, because if he were to, to resign, or if Schumer were to, what I think is the right thing, try and lead a, you know, expel him from the Senate, well, then New Jersey's got a vacancy. What happens if New Jersey's got a vacancy? Democrats need the seat. 
Governor Murphy gets to appoint someone, right? Well, who's in the Senate primary against? Yeah, so so the governor will appoint his wife, uh, Tammy <laughs> Murphy. Maybe a conversation for another politicology episode if I'm invited back after this one. Um, but I'm not going to say that is why Bob Menendez is not resigning. Sure. But I know that is in the conversation. But it's very New Jersey. It is very New Jersey. <laughs> it is so New Jersey. Um, yes, definitely a conversation we should visit in the future. Yeah. Uh, Liam, I don't even know what to ask you because it's just so funny to, it's just so funny to me, but like, um, and also here's, okay, here's my question. Why don't you think anybody cares? I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions of the great state of New Jersey, but I I feel like it fits, (laughs) it, it just fits, it fits this caricature so well. And look, I mean, we just, we just established that, that people that, that I think cartoonish corruption stock or otherwise gold bars included i mean this all fits what people think when they when they conjure up images of like you know dc double dealing you know they 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 kind of and and here's here's the funny thing to me if you go back to 2015 and 2016 one of the winning messages that donald trump was able to exploit was this is the stuff that happens. These guys are corrupt. The system's broken. I know it because I owned these people. I bought them and I alone can fix it. And so not only is that very strange just by virtue of the fact that he's already in the soup, but like he, he, he acknowledged it from the beginning and it wasn't really true. Cause he never like he, in his head, like he owned Hillary Clinton because he like wrote her a thousand dollar check and she came to his wedding or some nonsense. But like he, dealt enough at city hall and his dad did he dealt enough in albany that he saw sort of examples and and political paradigms that built his image and that frankly is an image that like a lot of people have and so is it shocking no he already beat the rap once so as liz said this is something that's not really new i think some of the details are fascinating like finding cash in his you know windbreaker pockets that says like senator menendez and the gold bars are just fascinating uh i I hadn't heard about the race car tickets that's good to know he's getting some race car stuff but you know this isn't new i mean heck go back to my uh, former governor bob mcdonald that was the one that got tested at the supreme court level which you know virginia is kind of the wild west when it comes to campaign contributions but the key is disclosure but he'd been you know gotten caught up in a lifestyle that wasn't his own he was a career public servant former army officer and then was just in government all along but when you're a politician you start running around um with the richest people in the world um fat cat donors going, you know, going on the campaign dime to these great resorts and you get caught up in that lifestyle. So McDonald was, you know, getting, having rides in fancy cars and go flying on planes and all that kind of stuff. So like there's sort of more innocent versions and then there's just like flat out graft at the other end, but people don't distinguish between this. This is just what you think of when you think of corrupt politicians. And if I were to look at like, what is the Hudson County boss look like in the dictionary? It's like, there's Bob Menendez with his gold bars. I mean, that, that, that tracks. It's, that's such a great point, which is all the more craziness that the Hudson County line for the uh, Democratic primary for Senate has gone to Tammy Murphy already. Um, sorry, we can talk about county lines another yeah. time, but I, I just I do want to say based on the, the. What does that mean exactly? If you had to put it in a tweet, 
Oh, um, yes, my my favorite topic. Um, yeah. Basically, the way that voting works in New Jersey is you only have to appeal to 21 people, and those are the 21 county chairs. What? Because the county chairs are responsible for the design of the ballot, meaning they can give somebody the line, oh, which means right. all candidates that they want you to vote for will be like yeah. column A. And so they will campaign on vote column A, vote column A. If Bob Menendez is on column C and Tammy Murphy's on column A and Joe Biden's on column A and all of the assemblymen and senators you want, you know, your your constituents to vote for are also on column A, you're not even looking at column C. So Tammy Murphy keeps getting awarded all of these county lines. There's an interesting article about it um, in the New York Times. But what I do want to say, my last comment on this, um, because I was talking about Schumer Menendez, I'm sure having discussions about this. Based on the new information that has come out, I think the article was either last night or this morning that was showing that Bob Menendez was texting people before meetings with this developer he was trying to help. And they have copies of the text that he sent saying, I hope these are favorable meetings. Okay. So this is definitely a story to watch. Um, But I think that maybe Schumer, I, I could see him potentially getting pressure from the administration. I could see these conversations changing a little bit now that there is more information that it's not just being a foreign agent for the Egyptian government. Now you have the Qatari government and so much more. Um, because the Biden administration sees it as, okay, you expel him. The governor's still going to appoint a Democratic senator. So they don't see it as a lose. So anyway, that's a lot of New Jersey jargon, but will be interesting to watch. Which I'd note wasn't, at least at certain points during the first fight with Melgan, that wasn't the case. Christie was still the governor. So you have people have with some muscle That's memory right. around supporting him because you had to support him because if you didn't, that might that might cost you the Senate seat. Yeah, I think with with Cutter now in the mix and the Hamas associations with Cutter, this becomes a lot more salient for a lot of people. OK, let's do the insurrection pivot. Uh, Joe Biden is planning to kick off the election year. I'm very happy about this. I'm very excited about this. By focusing on Donald Trump and his role in the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, by the way, this weekend. On Saturday, he's going to mark the third anniversary of the attack in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where the Continental Army was encamped between 1777 and 1778. The AP is reporting that Biden will, quote, decry former President Donald Trump for the riot by a mob of his supporters who overran the Capitol in an attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And Alex Thompson, who is going to join us today at Axios, um, is reporting that the move makes it clear that the Biden campaign will make Trump's role in January 6th a big part of his campaign messaging this year. Biden's team has not spent a great deal of time attacking Trump this year. And the AP story noted that uh, his kickoff 2024 won't focus on, quote, an upbeat affirmation of his record, but rather will focus on one of the darkest moments in our nation's history. Um, so I, uh, I am, I'm thrilled to see this pivot because it's quite obvious uh, that, well, uh, the president's accomplishments haven't really been working for him politically. Whatever you think about the policy successes as they, as they are, and that, you know, he, he has this refrain uh, don't compare me to uh, the alternative. Don't compare me to the Almighty. Compare me to the alternative, right? Well, it's it looks like the campaign is finally starting to do just that. So, Liz, we'll start with you. What does it show about how Biden's team sees their successes and how they will or won't resonate with the American public? Do you think do you think that that line of um, messaging is gone for good? Or yeah, how do you read this? 
lots of thoughts um, on this, but to answer your question first, I will say when you were just saying he's making the pivot and I'm very excited about it, I it is because the campaign has realized that going with the positive messaging isn't totally working. And I agree with that. It is not working yet. It might a little bit later, but it's not working yet. I would say the contrast is that people are saying, Joe Biden needs to come forward with the reason for why him, why to vote for him, mm-hmm. the positive, the, you know, the offensive, not the defensive. He needs to come out with that. But I think the fact that the campaign is pivoting shows that they are savvy. They're doing the focus groups. They are reading, you know, their data, their understanding that going with the positive and the why Joe Biden isn't really working right now. Could that change? Yes. But I, I also agree with you that you have to go after Trump, especially on the anniversary of January the 6th. You just, you have to do it. And if people don't want to vote for Joe Biden, they certainly will vote against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And I think they're leaning into mm-hmm. that. And um, while, you know, as a as a Democrat, I wish we were having like the the inspirational candidate and the the why me and all of that. And, and I just don't think we're going to have that this cycle. So I, I think it's a savvy yeah. move. I think it's the correct move. Um, but I don't think it'll be their last move. It's also not how he beat Trump in 2020, by the way. Like, there was not, it was not like, yay, look at all the things Joe Biden has done in his career. No, it was like, we have to rescue the country from impending uh, catastrophe. He did a very similar thing with Charlottesville, right? I mean, yep. this was, that was what he did in 2020. Like, you know, it makes a lot of sense that he is is doing this. Yeah. Uh, so on a conference call with reporters, uh, Biden's campaign manager, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, said... We are running a campaign like the fate of our democracy depends on it because it does. Um, And Trump, by contrast, is facing 91 criminal charges, including the ones stemming from his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, Colorado, which we talked about last week, and now Maine have both decided that Trump cannot be on their primary ballot because he engaged in insurrection and is thus ineligible to be president, which we've discussed at length. Um, So... Liam, we've talked, I think, a lot about why nobody's buying Bidenomics. So I wonder how much more likely do you think this messaging is to resonate with voters? And then I want to briefly turn to this uh, 14th Amendment argument and a hypothetical I want to pose. But first on the messaging pivot. Yeah, I mean, I think that to your point, this is we talked about this on the perhaps last time I was here. when We talked about Bidenomics was obviously not working, at least not by itself. Like people need to, you know, the problem for Biden is that that almighty versus alternative um, message worked better in 2020 because it was about that alternative. And um, this time he has a record and it just so happens when you're not the challenger, it does have to be at some level about you. It can't be a referendum and they need to turn it into that choice election. Uh, But right now, I think the alternative looks pretty good because people have this weird nostalgia that's taken over, whether that's thinking about what their 401k look like, whether it's sort of giving, you know, giving him a pass on COVID and thinking back to back when life was normal. Um, you know, but life has never been normal in the Biden era for better, or for worse, whatever. It's not, you no, know, not his, not his fault, but I think they've figured that out. They can read a poll just like we can. And as we talked about in that Bidenomics episode, they, they have to go back to that negative message because they're not going to win. You know, it's not it's not going to be a beauty contest. It's going to be a, a slog. It's going to be trench warfare. It's going to be, again, trying to I mean, wh- what has what has worked for Democrats since 2017? Quite frankly, it's 
Trump is the glue. Trump is what unites them. And so you need Trump to be front and center. And not only front and center, you need to remind people why he's so bad. You need to remind them of people that have things things that have have not remained front and center. For some people it has, but for your marginal, you know, infrequent voter that's, you know, kind of on the fence and um, actually has a decision to make. Um, and at the same time, it's a mobilizing message. It's, it's something to, you know, you have a, a base. I mean, whatever you think of the polls and whatever's going on there, um, you know, at best, it's, it is Democrats not answering polls. What does that tell you when people are not answering polls, that non-response bias? That means they're bummed out. You need to do something to fire them up. This is this is that, and it's it's part of a broader argument he needs to make. Um, you know, I think we can get into the Fourteenth Amendment stuff because I think that's that's where it gets a little tricky. I think the the message of we're doing this for the soul of our democracy, as you guys mentioned, this is something he has said was animating him from day one, from the day he he announced his campaign. So thematically, this this fits. Um, and it's an acknowledgement that's simply running on. I mean, he's going to have to go around and and remind people that he has done things that he's that you know just getting out there, being out there, giving speeches is something that is important. Because it, what's the other difference from twenty twenty? You know, the the basement doesn't work anymore, or to the extent that it's going to work, it's going to be because Trump's doing it. Um, you know, the, the spotlight shines bright, and I think there's, you know, the threshold is forgiving in the sense that. Biden just has to go out there and not have a viral moment. Um, and that's that's sort of the blessing and the curse is like if he does something silly, like Twitter's going to have a field day with it and it might reinforce an image in people's minds. But if he goes out there and does a decent job, that's the way you get good news cycles going. That's where you, ch- that's where you change the vibes and get people happy again. I, w- I was just going to say that's why I kind of wish that they weren't going to Valley Forge. I mean, it's like – probably just could have done the speech somewhere in Washington, somewhere that was like impacted by the insurrection. You know, I, I get maybe leaving Washington because you don't want to mix, you know, being the president and being the candidate, maybe. But like, I don't know, I think back to the battle of the soul of our nation speech in front of the Philadelphia City Hall with the red lights and the guards and like people forget the speech, but they remember the image of him looking, you know, like he's in wartime. So as a, as an advanced person, I will say um, to to my colleagues, I hope it is a beautiful, wonderful, successful event. But I hope, you know, to your point, Liam, this is what just made me think of it. I hope it is not just a viral moment because that's not totally what he needs. And I think there are a lot of opportunities for that, taking him into that setting. Just like say the words and be authentic and say them well and have good reception. And that's it. You know, the stunt is like a little off for me. Yeah. I think Liam, you said something very interesting, which I think is worth underscoring. Uh, which is that life has never been normal under Joe Biden and it's not his fault, right? That's the reason we elected him because life was not normal. Life was chaos and we needed somebody who could sort of stabilize things. Okay. The real job, I think, for the campaign to do is to remind people that a vote for Donald Trump is not a vote for returning to normal, right? If you're hungry for normal, you're not going to get it with that guy, right? And that actually the best thing we can do is to stay the course because things are getting better. Ron, that's good. <laughs> you should you should shop that one around. Cut that 30 seconds yeah. right there. Put it up there. Um, I think that the tricky part is the the promise, whether it whether it was explicit or just inferred, was we need to get this guy out of there, vote for Joe Biden, and things will go back to normal. And I think that has mostly, of course, not 
not happened, at least not to people's satisfaction. And to the extent that it has happened, think about this. Yes, you did cast Donald Trump out of office. You made politics boring again, but that hasn't made people happy. It's made people forget why they wanted to get back to normal. So the normalcy to the extent that exists was just pushing by pushing Trump to like the hinterlands of truth social where you can go be crazy over there and everybody forgets, you know, uh, what, what we're, what we're even talking about in the first place. Okay. So very, very briefly, I just want to touch on the 14th amendment because we talked about it last week, but Maine had not yet, uh, made their decision to remove him from the ballot on a scale of one to 10. I've been following this issue, uh, at a 10, for a, a layperson, which is about as like I've gotten as smart as I can be without being a lawyer, uh, so I don't know where you guys are, um, and I'll put my cards on the table. I'm convinced actually that if a decision is made on the law, that he is already not qualified to be president, and that that no action, no further action needs to be taken for that to be enforced. The question is what the court will do, and whether it'll even decide that question ahead of uh, ahead of the election. So there's a couple of hypothetical scenarios here that I just want people to be aware of. One is that they do nothing and he's allowed to, um, that he's allowed to uh, be on the ballot and we go on to November. If he's removed from ballots now or if he's disqualified now or, you know, in the coming few months and suddenly Donald Trump is no longer at the top of the Republican ticket, that's hypothetical number one. What happens? Because I have a hunch that maybe Joe Biden doesn't run. I don't know. That's, a, that's, that's one thought. Um, but what does that do to the landscape, right? And then hypothetical number two is, okay, we go to November, Trump actually wins. You go to Congress January 6th, and then they have a constitutional obligation actually to determine the eligibility of the person for whom the Electoral College is casting its votes. And then you have a big fight, arguably a constitutional crisis in Congress on January 6th. And how do you think um, that resolves? So. Those are two very unpleasant, I think, um, scenarios. Because in either way, no matter how this question shakes out, I think there's going to be, even if the court rules and everybody's sort of, all the, all the people who think that for the sake of democracy, to say nothing of the law, believe he should be allowed to run, this issue doesn't necessarily go away because Congress still constitutionally has a, has a job to do on the 6th. Whatever you think of Trump and his eligibility and, and, and whether or not it would be a good thing or a bad thing he gets elected, I think the true constitutional crisis would be the legislative branch trying to overturn the will of the voters. Like that, that's – I don't think that's tenable. So I, I think – I mean especially because the argument at this stage – and I guess this is how it works. It's a slippery argument of like, well, let's not – Let's not adjudicate this here. Let's let so and so decide. Well, let's let and and that's how it happened with with uh, even with impeachment. It was like, well, let's let the voters decide or let's let the courts decide. Um, but but I truly think the voters have the final say here, and I don't think it's tenable. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that the electoral college is ultimately decide or like the certifications on on January sixth would be determined by who has the most state delegations. And I think Republicans would have the most state delegations. And so barring some weird act of political courage where they decide to take the election away from their own, I mean, that just sounds, mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mm -hmm. sound, that right. sounds like way into Sorkin land to me. <laughs> yep, maybe. Um, I'd watch that. And, and, and look, I think, I think the most, 
um, coherent argument that I can come up with is that there's no there's no easy button here. There's no legal gimmick. There's no way out here. You have to if you are going to defeat Trump, you have to reject him at the ballot box with the understanding that he might not accept that. But I truly think as a as a as a democratic imperative, you, you have to deal with it that way. That's the only way at this point that we can ever resolve it. Okay, so I think I'm, I'm curious what Liz thinks, but I think the counterpoint to that is, yeah, the voters get to decide, and the voters actually decided via the democratic process to amend the Constitution <laughs> and provide for not allowing insurrectionists in, uh, like, we've already gone through that process, right? And if the law is that, not, not that you can't be voted for, but you can't hold office, which is the text, can't hold office, uh, then the law has to be enforced as it's written. If you're if you're actually applying a, a textualist originalist uh, analysis of the Constitution, well, the, I think you get into semantic discussions of what constitutes insurrection. Yes, exactly. Trump wasn't charged right. with insurrection. Ah, right. Um, you know, of course, I think you can go back to the contemporary debate over. Um, what they meant by insurrection. Why didn't they circumscribe it to the Civil War? And they they meant to include future insurrections. But I think if you can say, well, none Trump and, and anyone else involved with January 6th weren't ever charged, let alone convicted with insurrection. So that's a slippery, you know, that that yep. that that word. So is, you're so the so the question is, is it a, is a conviction required under the under the but they're not, he's not even that's not even something that was was lodged at him from from a legal standpoint um and you know who, who's the arbiter of that just a random congressman who's who's only wrote, i mean we go back to like january 6th in the first place right like our entire our entire operating premise was no one had the right to do any of that stuff certainly not mike pence but those members were you know usurping the will of the people by trying to step in with their specious claims. So I think trying to do it the other way is just a road that would lead nowhere good. Yeah. Okay. Liz? I I agree with Liam on this. I mean, we need to see voters show up at the ballot box and, and this sounds so trite, but like take care of it there, right? Like he needs to be defeated again at the ballot box. Goodbye. And will we ever see him go away? I don't know. But like, that's what it takes. I do want to say just quickly on this like insurrection pivot and this whole thing is um, an article came out, I think it was just this morning that said 25% um, of Americans still believe that the events of January 6th were all instigated by the FBI. Like there is still- How many? That, 26? Uh, 25%. A quarter of the population is still in this belief. So like Joe Biden taking this insurrection pivot is something he has to do, but also, you know, it's a, a calculus, not that those 25% of people were ever with him in the first place, but to this argument about how Trump has to be dealt with the constitution, the democratic process, whatever. I just wanted to insert that, uh, statistic as something to watch because if a quarter of the country doesn't believe what the truth of the events were of that day, I mean, there's still a lot of educating that has to happen between now and November. Yeah. Whether it can happen is a big question mark. Now that we've uh, caught up on a few of the most important stories this week, what are you watching? Liz, what did you bring? 
Okay, so I am following the case of Brittany Watts in Ohio. This is a 34-year-old woman who is facing charges because she uh, miscarried at home after going to the hospital twice asking for support and help. She was at 21 weeks and five days, which was, I guess, too close for comfort for the hospital in Warren, Ohio, um, to, to provide assistance. Um, she went home and had to miscarry at home. And the first question the doctors asked was that they needed to provide the corpse to the police. So she is being charged for abusing a corpse. I am bringing this up because as we have talked about the impacts of Roe v. Wade, I mean, forget the social implications and absolute horror of the fact that this is a headline in the New York Times, okay? I think about 10 to 20% of women go through miscarriages, the fact that this is a headline in the Times and that this is anyone's business, but this woman on her own with her and her doctor. I mean, it's a, obviously a larger conversation, but I'm bringing it up not only to follow the case, but especially in a, a state like Ohio, um, where they are trying to, you know, rectify situations like this and, and they have been very successful. Um, but in particular, just the impact that Roe v. Wade is going to continue to have on this election. When I was last on we were talking a lot about what was going on in the Middle East and how that might impact the election. And I, you know, believe that I said that day, or it was a conversation that we had, Ron, where I said, we don't know that voters are going to go to the ballot box to, to cast their, to cast their vote based on what is happening overseas, that people are really focused on what is happening at home. I know we talked about immigration and, and so many other things, but the reason why the 2022 midterms were so successful for Democrats were because so many young people and so many women continue to use this as their single issue, um, as their single issue for when they go to vote. And so continuing to see headlines like these, which I sincerely hope we do not. But if we do, this is going to stay um, at, at the top of the issues list for for the upcoming election. Liam, what'd you bring? So I think news of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. getting on the ballot in Utah uh, not that Utah is going to be what decides the election, but I think that's hey, that's kind of hey the, one of the signal. <laughs> that's one of the that's one of the signal questions that when we're looking at polling at this point, it only means so much in part because we're so far out, but also because we don't really know what our choices are. Right. I mean, voters are um, currently kind of parking their votes, uh, registering their displeasure, hiding behind third party candidates that may or may not be options for them. So I think watching which ballots. Um, and which which particular states that Kennedy can get on, that Cornell West can get on, that uh, anyone else uh, who could potentially bleed votes um, can get on, because it really only matters. Um, it's it's kind of like Trump getting thrown off the ballot in theory, and you know, setting aside the broader issues. If he's not on the ballot in California, it doesn't really matter because he wasn't going to win, or uh, you know, Colorado. He's not going to win Colorado. Who cares? Um, but can Kennedy or West or whomever get on the seven states that are going to decide this thing? That's pretty huge. I think there's reasons to doubt that he will just without a party apparatus, without there's there's money coming in, but you don't necessarily have serious people that know what they're doing. So that could be a huge, huge determining factor in how this goes. And I don't think anybody is prepared. I mean, you can make the case either way as to who that who that would help in any given state, but it's going to be a huge factor when it comes down to, okay, is this truly a binary choice or is there any place for that kind of ambivalent fence-sitting voter to go? Speaking of 
not having serious people who know what they're doing, the no labels fiasco is still a uh, is still a big question mark because we don't know what of who they're going to nominate. And uh, okay, um, we are going to head over to Politicology Plus in a minute, uh, where we're going to talk about what uh, what a saga. Claudine Gay resigning from her post as president of Harvard. The torrent of questions the entire thing has raised, including uh, one I think is the most politically salient of all of this, which is whether whether DEI is now going to be a political liability um, for Democrats. Where can everybody find you on the internet before we move over there, Liz? Um, you you still can't. <laughs> um, I'm still on my uh, social media hiatus. Um, so if you, you. want to reach me, write to Politicology, <laughs> and Ron will pass pass along any messages. Um, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Liam, how about you? At LP Donovan on Twitter X, whatever we're calling it these days. I have a Substack LP Donovan at Substack, and uh, check out the pod, the Lobby Shop. We're gonna we're gonna dig into immigration on the next Ooh, one. So good. we'll 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 get some good stuff there. Can't coming. wait. Okay. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.